This is Mormon Awakenings. You can email me your questions or comments to mormonawakenings at gmail, or you can find me at Facebook at either Mormon Awakenings or Jack Nanique. Welcome back. I'm a little sick this week. Sorry, I'm going to sound a little gravelly. But I was able to drag myself from my deathbed to speak into this mic to produce this episode of this podcast. You're welcome. Don't worry, it's not contagious. I'll tell you what is contagious, though. Ideas. Ideas sure are contagious, aren't they? It's a weird notion that an idea, a thought, that represents some sort of insight or some sort of conclusion about the way things are, would be considered contagious. Something, something that might replicate itself, jump from host to host to host, beyond the host's awareness of any of this even happening. Can that be true? Do ideas replicate like that? You know, they rep- do they replicate like Ebola or the flu? You know, somebody has Ebola or the flu and they sneeze or they cough and these spores or, you know, mucus or, you know, spray, whatever it is, comes out of the nose and plumes out into the air. And then person B, who's unaware, walks by into this cloud of, you know, gunk and picks some of it up physically. And then the little residual gunk replicates inside person B without that person even aware of it. Do ideas do that? Well, maybe they do. When you express an idea, you're kind of sending something out into the ether, and all the other people inside your orbit hear it, process it, come to some sort of conclusion about it, and perhaps even internalize it without even knowing what they're doing. Till a couple weeks later, they're at a dinner party, some topic comes up, it reminds them of this idea, and then they express the idea. The plume of gunk, if you will, gets shot out into the ether and person A, B, C, D, E, they walk by and hear this idea, start processing it. And maybe they're all unaware of it. Maybe we are all unaware of all the ideas that we're internalizing. In this sense, I think ideas are contagious, which makes them extremely powerful for both good and ill. Hitler understood this, of course. He was able, through the seeding of ideas, almost reprogrammed the collective consciousness of his countrymen. Other great despots have done that too. Mao, Stalin, but so have the great religious leaders, Jesus, Buddha, Gandhi, Muhammad. They were able somehow to get their ideas out get them absorbed by the people around them, and on and on it went. Of course, there needs to be something appealing about any given idea for it to become truly contagious. An idea has to appeal to something about us, our natures as humans. It has to tap into our proclivities somehow, which is why dumb ideas really aren't contagious. If they're just dumb or moronic or illogical, poorly thought out, those type of ideas don't replicate. They aren't contagious. And as ideas sort of circulate around the ether of our world, there always seems to be this internal struggle between our more base natures and our higher natures. And the ideas that appeal to our base nature, when they replicate, when they become this contagion that infects everybody, it produces this highly negative cloud that seems to engulf everyone around it. And if an idea that appeals to our higher nature somehow gets replicated and 
transmitted throughout the population. Then there's this really positive vibe, this really wonderful vibration that you can feel. And you can see this. You know, you can look at a class of, of any particular class in any particular high school and compare it to other classes. And there's this general vibe about the class. The, the seniors might have a more positive vibe than the juniors. And then the sophomores might be more cynical. And, you know, there's this collective vibration. I experience that as I teach the kids at church. Each class is very different. There's this collective vibe about them. And, you know, it's not all ideas, but a lot of it is because ideas produce attitudes. Ideas produce dispositions. Ideas produce the basic logical blocks about how one should respond to any given situation. What one should do. What's right. What's moral. What's good. Now, the reason I'm raising any of this idea of gobbledygook stuff is because this past week I read two interesting essays, if you will. One was in the form of a very well thought out Facebook post. The other was an article in The Atlantic written by Hal Boyd. For those who live in Utah, Hal Boyd is the editor of the Deseret News editorial page. Deseret News, of course, is the newspaper owned by the church. It also publishes the church news. I want to read a little bit from these two pieces. First, from the well-thought-out Facebook post. About six months ago here in Utah, a number of individuals in various stakes were given special callings to investigate the rising tide of young people leaving or disengaging with the church. These callings were under the authority of Elder Ballard and went through area authorities and then ultimately were called by stake presidents as stake callings. The numbers, as stated by the church at the time of the callings and setting apart, are chilling. We are losing fully 75% of our young people at the age of 21, and even worse, over 50% of our return missionaries. The guidelines of the calling were to investigate and to report back to the church why this is happening and come back with recommendations as to what changes the church should make to help stem the tide. Sounds like the church is looking for new ideas. Maybe even look for ways to reprogram the collective consciousness that is the church to raise the vibration a little bit or make it more welcoming or at a minimum figure out this problem of why we're driving away so many of our youth and young people. Of all the people called to this assignment, this Facebooker's friend was one of them. And so his friend came to him and asked him to help out. The post continues. I took the responsibility seriously, and with quite a bit of optimism, the apostles were actually reaching out and asking for help and opinion of mere members on what changes the church should make to improve the church. This felt revolutionary to me. As a gospel doctrine teacher in my ward, I took advantage of the platform to reveal the project And to ask for input, the response was overwhelming. Many, many people told me in class and in private that they were wrestling with this trend towards leaving the church in their family, amongst their friends, and in their own personal lives. The issues were all too familiar. The November policy towards gays, the systemic cover-up of church history, the inconsistencies and questionable motives behind the Word of Wisdom, Book of Abraham problems, and the general love-hate relationship that church leaders display towards learning and logic 
Love it if it supports the narrative. Hate it if it raises hard questions. But far and away, the biggest issue I heard about was that the church culture does not allow for a forum to discuss anything outside the narrowly defined correlated creeds of Mormonism. Everyone is forced to sit on their questions, concerns, and issues like festering eggs rather than having a forum to discuss and work them out one way or another at church with other like-minded people who love and support them. The Facebooker continues at the bottom of his post with this observation. Most surprisingly, I had a very conservative 20-year seminary slash institute teacher slash director tell me that if he could make one change in the church to keep young people from leaving, it would be to scrap the word of wisdom as a commandment and let it speak for itself, not by way of commandment or constraint. He sees too many young single adults who violate the word of wisdom, feel tremendous guilt and judgment, and as a result, don't feel worthy, which results in separating themselves from the church. Later on in this post, this Facebooker made this observation. I put together my list of reasons and recommendations and forwarded them to my friend who had compiled his own. He went through a series of return and report sessions with various stake presidents and area authorities. I was disappointed to observe that the honesty and frankness of the recommendations got watered down during this process. In my opinion, when you have people who are invested in their own status and upward mobility in the church, it does not encourage their telling of hard truths to their superiors. Mostly, I believe a version of correlation-friendly suggestions were ultimately made that reinforce the idea that we sustain you as prophets, seers, and revelators, and whatever the Lord tells us to do is a-okay with us. An opportunity squandered, in my humble opinion, but the fact that the door was cracked open at all from the Salt Lake City side is somewhat encouraging. Then at the end of this post, I, I have to note, he mocks me, and he says, gotta go for now, and then he says in parentheses, I've gone on far too long, which made me laugh. But this was a great post. This raised a lot of very interesting ideas about ideas themselves. It illustrates how foundational ideas are. And when they become widespread, they become the operating system, if you will, of certainly of individuals, but also of communities, of institutions. And this post illustrates that. It also shows how we really don't even think about the ideas that we rely on to conduct life, our lives, our institutional lives. They all operate at a subconscious level. Once they're internalized, once you've caught the contagion, this post shows that it shows how we as a community, as a church operate. And it also shows how we don't even think about how we operate. It's all just happening because we've caught the contagion. Let's go through some of these ideas. And let me say up front, not all the ideas are bad ideas. Some are good, but let's go through some of them. The first idea is that all inspiration must come from the top down or that any inspiration that bubbles from the bottom up must be vetted and then certified by the people at the top, which is why Elder Ballard, an apostle, decided to go to the area authority, 
The area authorities went down to the stake presidents. The stake presidents then chose individuals who could be trusted, I suppose, to make these inquiries and then back up the chain it went. There's a far simpler way, of course, to gather information about why young single Mormons are becoming increasingly disaffected with the church. And that's to ask them. Put up a little box at LDS.org. Put a little title over that box that says, Hey, young single adults, why are you disaffected with the church? Please tell us. If you don't want to go that far, then put up a little box and say, Hey, bishops of young single adults, please use this box to tell us what you've observed. Now, in their defense, recently, Elder Ballard and Elder Oaks have had this kind of online devotional where they respond to the questions of the young single adults, and I applaud them for that. I think that's good. But the format was, ask us questions, and then we will give you the answers. If you have a doctrinal, a life question, if you need to know what you should do, ask us, we'll tell you. That's fine. They're old. They're experienced. I'd like to do that. I'd like to ask those guys questions. I think I'd learn a thing or two. So I'm not, that's not a bad thing. But it's fundamentally different than asking the young single adult what they are struggling with at church and how we as a church community can address it. That's a fundamentally different question. And the dynamics are fundamentally different because what you're saying is, hey, you young single adult, you may know more than I do. If for no other reason than you're living in an era that's 50 or 60 years after the glory days of my youth. But I think there's this idea in the church, this contagion that we've all caught that has led us to believe that the apostles should just know. They're the prophets, the seers, and the revelators after all. And so they're either going to get it by, by prophecy, why young single adults are leaving, or through some sort of inquiry, they'll be able to discern which are the real causes, which aren't, when presented with a list of reasons. And you got to kind of do things this way in the church, because if you start doing things differently, then you start stimulating other ideas about the hierarchy. Because there are a lot of people out there who would look at a box at LDS.org, soliciting answers from our young single adults. And they would say, well, what are you asking them for? I thought you were the prophet. And that's a dangerous idea because it leads to another idea, which is no one's in charge. No one knows what they're doing. The church has just become this big, you know, rolling blob and it's got its own inertia and you better just get out of the way. Now, that's not my view, by the way. I'm just trying to illustrate the dynamics here. And the reason I want to review the dynamics here is because I want to discuss why the church is slow to change. It's because ideas are powerful and contagious and can be dangerous. In fact, this confuses us as members, of course, because wasn't the church founded by new revolutionary ideas in the first place? Why are we afraid of ideas? And that's a big conundrum, a big question. And pondering that question elicits responses from the whole gamut of people inside the church. The antiquarians point to the gospel of Adam and the hierarchy and the priesthood as being given from the beginning. There are no new ideas. These were all restored. The critics will say things like, 
If you're a prophet, a seer, and a revelator, and you're also not full of crap, why can't you just see, O oh seer, what all the problems with the young single adults are? You can't do that? Oh, well, turns out you are full of crap. Goodbye. When any changes are made, the same sort of logic crops up. Oh, you're getting rid of polygamy? Well, someone's full of crap here. I'm leaving. Oh, blacks aren't the descendants of Cain? Well, whoever said that clearly wasn't a prophet, seer, and revelator, and that was a lot of people for a long time, and, well, more crap, I'm leaving. Then the antiquarians say, well, this was a new revelation. We're just going to do what the Lord tells us to do. We're a living church, after all. Then the critics say back to him, if you're so living, then how can you say it was the gospel of Adam, immutable from the beginning? And there's some contradictions here. And of course there are, and they become quite apparent when Elder Ballard has to go to area authorities to stake presidents to trusted members of the stake back to stake presidents to area authorities back up to the apostles to answer a simple question like, why are young single adults increasingly disaffected with our church? The answers they got back to that question, by the way, also make apparent some ideas that operate subconsciously inside our community. Ideas that have been absorbed and internalized via the contagion. And that idea is that one should manage one's church career carefully because that's the best way to get status. That's a darker idea in my view. Certainly less talked about operating at a subconscious level. But when you start to look for it, you notice it everywhere. This idea can be found not only inside our church, but any institution where there's some sort of hierarchy, some sort of ladder to climb, a ladder that leads to the top. This idea has a more pronounced effect, in my view, inside our community, because inside our community, theoretically anyways, any male member could become prophet, which is an unusual concept in religious circles. Most Catholics, for example, at least the lay Catholics, the ones that are just going to church every Sunday, they don't think they can become Pope. To become Pope, you got to go to seminary, you got to be a priest for a while, you got to do all, you got to make it your career, career. But in our church, theoretically, anyways, though improbable, any male member as of now could become prophet. If you just play your cards right, you'll be bishop and then a stake president, maybe you'll have a side trip to be a mission president. Soon you'll be speaking at general conference, and then who knows? This phenomenon is more pronounced, I believe, in the Rocky Mountain West. I'm not trying to pick on anyone in the Rocky Mountain West, but people on the East Coast, we don't really think we can become a general authority, A, and B, a lot of us don't care to be one because their jobs look like a big drag. But as Mormons are more concentrated, the status associated with that goes up and up and up. And so there's this subconscious desire to climb the ranks. This idea is completely subconscious, yet it is a contagion that's affected a good number of our people. It's a poison and a cancer in my view, it being managing one's church career. I say that because the best people I've known in the church have absolutely no desire I'll even go further than that, are, are almost oblivious to any church career stuff. In my view, those are the best people. Of course, those people don't make policy. Those people don't make speeches. Those people don't 
affect the church zeitgeist. All they do is help individuals on an individual basis. We ought to have a whole separate podcast on what's more valuable, the work that the anonymous do or the work that those at the top of the pyramid do. It's an interesting question. We'll have to punt for now and answer that one later or at least address it. But in the post, the people managing their careers watered down their answers to the people above them because they didn't want to offend those above them, right? It's hard to go to Russell M. Nelson and Dallin H. Oaks and say quite candidly, hey, you know, the reason a lot of our young people are leaving the church is because of your views on homosexuality and the November gay policy. The person who's able to say that doesn't care about their next church promotion. And the person who doesn't care about their next church promotion is most likely not in the room when these discussions are even going on. That sounds very cynical. I feel badly even saying that. It's critical, but I think it is an accurate representation, more or less. And more importantly, I think it illustrates the effects of this darker idea that lives within the hearts and minds of people in our church, that one must manage one's church career for the sake of status. Now, I'm all for bishops, stake presidents, leaders who are concerned with changing lives and are not concerned about the next job up the line. And to be totally fair, I think our bishops and our stake presidents are completely overworked and they spend way, 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 way more time serving people than I do. The bishops and stake presidents in my life are good people, period. But some of them do worry about advancement. Many worry about what they say to the higher-ups. And there's a certain lack of candor, I think, that exists inside the church. It can't all be attributed to people managing their church careers. I acknowledge that. It, It simply can't. But people managing their careers inside the church foster that vibe, and it can become subconsciously contagious. This leads me to my next and final point, which is in response to an excellent article in The Atlantic by Hal Boyd, published on November 15th of this year. Hal Boyd goes on to describe how it's okay to mock Mormons. You can't make fun of any other ethnic group or any other religion, but you can somehow, with impunity, mock the Mormons and make fun of them because of all their weird, crazy beliefs. Beliefs like being able to have your own world someday, becoming a god, polygamy, golden Bible, Moroni, which is how most people outside of Mormonism pronounce Moroni, the angel that told Joseph Smith where the Golden Bible was. In his article, Hal Boyd quotes Stephen Webb. He writes, The late Catholic theologian Stephen Webb observed that mocking Mormonism is one of the last frontiers of verbal lawlessness to be untouched by the vigilante powers of political correctness. What other group is ridiculed equally by Christians and secularists? And not just any kind of Christian or secularist, but the most fervent and hardcore. The Catholics got The Sound of Music, the Jews got Fiddle on the Roof, and, well, the Mormons got South Park on the stage, referring to the musical The Book of Mormon. But then Hal Boyd goes on to observe that a lot of commentators, right after mocking Mormons, will then laud them for their pro-social behavior. 
how Boyd notices quite rightly that Mormons in general enjoy a reputation of being good, solid, honest, hardworking, reliable people. All these attributes are quite pro-social, yet they believe such kooky things. Well, how does that make any sense? And Hal Boyd seeks to answer that question. He writes, It's precisely the pro-social beliefs of Mormons, the eternal nature of families, obligations to the poor and oppressed, accountability to God, the importance of clean living, and the value of self-reliance and personal agency that results in specific behaviors and actions by the likes of the best Mormons. The best Mormon part I'm adding, he refers to Senator Flake and Mitt Romney as the best Mormons. Now, I agree with Hal Boyd. What he has stated, that it's precisely the pro-social beliefs of Mormons, and then he lists them, the eternal nature of families, obligations to the poor and oppressed, accountability to God, and the importance of clean living and the value of self-reliance and personal agency that results in specific shared behaviors and actions by Mormons. That's totally a true statement because those ideas form the foundation for Mormon thought, which then produces behavior. But I do want to make one distinction. I don't want to nitpick, but I think this is a distinction worth making. These are not the weird beliefs that people mock Mormons for. People mock Mormons because of polygamy and because of the King Follett sermon. And I might add, because in order to learn about why our young people are leaving the church, we have to have an apostle go to an area authority who then goes to the stake presidents, who then throughout their stakes call people surreptitiously to gather information, and then they compile a report, and then they return a report. These are the things that we're being mocked for, and frankly, these are all a little weird. Polygamy's weird. The King Follett sermon, well, maybe it's not weird. It's, it's certainly outlandish. And for those who don't remember the King Follett sermon, let me give you a quick refresher. Joseph Smith had a friend whose name was King Follett. He died. And then Joseph gave a speech at King Follett's funeral. 20,000 of the saints were in attendance at the time. So that's a pretty big funeral. And in this speech that Joseph gave, this sermon, he said this, as man now is, God once was, as God now is, man may be. I actually don't think that's weird. I think that's kind of cool. But it's outlandish. It's provocative. And it's ticked off a lot of our Christian brothers and sisters, not to mention our Muslim brothers and sisters who feel deity is to be revered to the point where you can't even represent Allah in, in graphic form. That in and of itself is heresy. So to say that God was a man and you know we can all become gods too, that's, that's outlandish. And in the mind of many others, it's outrageous. So people have mocked us because of that doctrine. Now I raise polygamy and I raise the King Follett sermon because over time we have chucked both. People know about chucking polygamy and there's some griping that we really haven't chucked it, but we, we have, we have chucked polygamy. You can't be married to two wives and in this world anyways 
and not get excommunicated. Gordon Hinckley went on 60 Minutes and bent over backwards to say we don't practice it. There's no doctrinal basis for it. So we've chucked it. People don't know that we've also sort of kind of chucked the King Follett sermon discourse. Gordon Hinckley also went on television, was asked, do you believe you're going to be a god and have your own planet? And he said, well, I don't know if we teach that. I was disappointed, (laughs) frankly. I remember being in the MTC and there was a guy in my group who told me that when he became a god and started creating his own worlds, he was going to make it so that it would snow during the summer so that he could ski in shorts. This was tongue-in-cheek, by the way. Unlike polygamy, I think the King Follett discourse, the ideas behind it, continue to live inside our community. And we're not really sure what to make of it right now. But we are, in my mind, distancing, distancing ourselves from it. The other thing that we were mocked for was our belief that all Africans were the descendants of Cain, and thereby were categorically unworthy to have the priesthood. That was not only weird, that was dumb, and we've chucked that. The reason I'm raising any of these specifics is because there is a trend in the church to de-weirdify things. And you can almost predict what's going to be chucked next, because whatever is the weirdest, that's going to somehow bubble up to the top of the weird stack, and, and that's going to be chucked next. It's a process, but in my mind, it is the process that Dieter F. Uchtdorf described when he said the restoration is ongoing. Don't miss it. In my mind, that is the slow de-weirdifying of the church. Now, when you start talking about de-weirdifying, at a more fundamental level, you're asking people to change their ideas, to consider, to recognize explicitly the logic blocks that are working inside their internal operating system. You also force people to start to readdress, change the ideas that are the foundational operating principles of the institution. And when you do that, you force people to ask some very tough questions of themselves. Like, why am I moving along this path? What is my motivation today? How does that compare with my motivations and my beliefs of yesterday, last week, last year? So someone who joined the church because of the King Follett Doctrine thought that was pretty cool. Hey, I want to become a god. Sign me up. I'd like to get baptized. And then they see Gordon Hinckley on the Larry King show saying, well, I'm not so sure we really teach that. Do we we teach that anymore, Larry? You know, as if Larry knows. And then the person who joined the church because of that says, well, what? But they've already been in the church for 10, 12, 15 years. They've developed a lot of other good habits. And they say, well, maybe it's... Not such a big deal. There are a lot of other good things here, but other people get very mad and say, you've lied to me, I'm, I'm leaving. And they throw the baby out with the, with the bathwater. Well, this is a, a conundrum, but this is a conundrum that we face in every aspect of our life, in every pursuit. Something that served as an initial motivation, be it a belief or an idea that pushes us a few yards down the path, leads us to do new, better things then become sort of an artifact in our lives, something we remember, but not something we're really using anymore. The person who joined the church because he wanted to become a god, but then got called into the young men's presidency, served the youth, then realized that he really loved the youth, and that's why he's coming to church. King Follett doesn't really matter anymore, does it? I went to college thinking I was going to be a surgeon, 
That's how I thought I would make big bank. Turns out there are a lot of other interesting things at college besides that. Got involved in some of those things, and some of those things were trans, transitory, and I moved on to other things, and this is kind of how it works in life. This is progress, and I don't know why we're afraid of it. Now, not every idea is a good one, and not even every contagious idea is a good one because sometimes the contagions of our lives appeal to our baser instincts. But ideas that are also contagious or easily transmittable and accepted by others that appeal to our higher natures, those are good ideas and we need to embrace those. Back to the Facebook post, maybe it would be a good idea to ease up on the word I don't know. I mean, my personal view is that it probably isn't because I think alcohol is a bigger poison than marijuana, causes way more destruction, is way more addictive. But when I'm at a ward Christmas party, I often think, man, it'd be nice to have a little alcohol to lube things up a little bit and get the party going because, you know, Mormons can be a little uptight. Likewise, there are probably a lot of good ideas that would appeal to our higher natures regarding the YSA, young single adults. And I propose that we start by stop calling them YSAs. They're people, not a category. And as I stated earlier in this podcast, if you want to know what's troubling the young people in the church, ask them, hey, young people of the church, what, what do you need from us? Do you need a band? Do you need better music at church? Do you need to you know, get rid of... Release society if you're between age 20 and 30. I don't know. We're obviously afraid of ideas. Now, I will grant this point. Ideas are scary. They're powerful. I think there's something to be feared about them. We ought to be careful with ideas the same way we're careful with fire or gasoline or, or you know nuclear bombs. We got to be careful with this stuff because if you're not careful with ideas, you end up as Nazi Germany or you could... But one of the marks of maturity of an individual and one of the marks of maturity of an institution is their ability to consider, judge, and sort through ideas, to separate the good ones from the bad ones. And we have a long, long history of doing just that. We're usually 20 to 40 years too late, but we chuck the weird ideas. That's what we do. That is Mormonism, in my view. That's what makes us a living church. That's what allows inspiration to enter in our willingness to abandon the old, outdated, the no longer useful, the weird, the unproductive. Slowly over time, we're building upon the foundation of good ideas that are pro-social. Accountability to God, kindness, goodness, dedication to family, commitment to others, honesty, and nobody mocks us for these ideas. Well, in the word of my Facebook friend, I've gone on far too long. I hope you found something interesting here today. Please do email me at mormonawakenings at gmail.com or find me at Facebook at Mormon Awakenings or Jack Nanique. Until next time.